It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We've been watching the conflict in Ukraine for almost a week now, and the consequences on the ground are terrifying and heartbreaking. But the fighting we can see isn't the only kind that's happening. As we live more of our lives online, warfare moves online too, and the methods are constantly evolving. There's that traditional definition, right? Deny, destroy, disrupt, deceive. Those are pretty clearly going under this bucket of cyber attack. But to me, what's more interesting is really not the mode, not the level of sophistication, but really it's the effects, it's the outcomes. Today's talk on cyber threats was recorded on February 18th, 2022, a few days before Russia invaded Ukraine. A panel of leading experts on cybersecurity talk about what the world is doing to prepare for virtual attacks and how those attacks might affect Ukraine and its neighbors. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Digital. Chris Krebs from Aspen Digital interviews panelist Sandra Joyce from cybersecurity company Mandiant and Dr. Herb Lynn from the Center for International Security and Cooperation at the Hoover Institution, both at Stanford University. Here's Krebs. I think what would be helpful is setting a little bit of context. So Mandiant obviously has a, is a global operation, a lot of telemetry and uh, incident response, forensics analysis globally. And so you probably have a pretty good sense of what has happened to date. So are you able to walk us through, can you walk us through what we've seen uh, from a cyber perspective, a technical perspective over the, the last several months in Ukraine? And then maybe give us a sense of what you as in your team at Mandiant might be expecting to see uh, here in the U.S., in the West, and, and also in Ukraine in the coming days, weeks, or months. Yeah, I'm happy to, Chris. So the way to think about it is we've seen activity that really falls into three main areas, uh, softening of the target within Ukraine, uh, domestic positioning within Russia, and then what that so-called casus belli, so that you know, cause for war kind of activity. Uh, we track a group called UNC 1151. This is the group that has been conducting what we call the Ghost Rider campaign. A lot of information operations against uh, groups in, in Germany, Latvia, Poland, and really looking at pushing narratives that are anti-NATO. So they've been con- just really doing and con- uh, conducting a lot of intrusions against organizations that have a critical role within the, the Ukraine um, you know, territory. We also have been seeing a group that we've tracked for a long time called Secondary Infection. This is what we believe is a Russian-backed information operations group. And really, we've seen four recent operations from November 2021 to February this month, where they pushed anti-Ukraine messaging, attempting to drive a wedge between Ukraine and NATO countries, uh, particularly Poland and Germany. In fact, we saw a a fake um, map that had been disseminated showing a a sort of an occupation of Polish soldiers along the border of Ukraine, something that is designed to really get um, the domestic audiences in those countries to start to feel negatively towards their own government. Uh, We've also seen Russian domestic audiences targeted with information operations, campaigns that have uh, really been... uh, you know, victims of this are looking at, at lies around humanitarian crises that supposedly have been perpetrated by the Ukrainian government. Along with that, we've seen a DDoS or distributed denial of service um, attacks against banks. This was widely reported. But even more interesting than that 
was the following SMS spam. So messages going out to bank customers, telling them that their bank doesn't work, that the website is down, which has a twofold effect. One, it drives more traffic to the bank itself, feeding that DDoS uh, incident, but also, and probably more importantly, driving up that fear, driving up the uncertainty around can the Ukrainian government protect itself, is, you know, undermining the confidence that there that, that is uh, there. So really all of this goes to show we really are watching so these active measures, these, you know, softening of the target within Ukraine, domestic positioning within Russia, and then really looking at how can we, um, how can Russia put out a message that could be interpreted as a cause for war. So we're seeing all of that uh, happening over the last couple of months and weeks. If I can pull a quick thread uh, real quick and then hop over to her, but, but back to you real quick for one follow-up, Sandra. Uh, you had a blog post earlier this week talking a little bit about, you know, put, trying to put into context what some of these events are. And at the same time happening across uh, uh, Twitter, I'm, I'm unfortunately extremely online and on Twitter all the time. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of debate on whether a DDoS attack against a bank or a Ministry of Defense or a website defacement or you know SMS spam, whether these actually constituted attacks. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, if looking in isolation, if you'd seen a website defacement on the government of Chile or Australia, you probably wouldn't think much of it. But I, as I see it within a, an area of geopolitical tension, uh, I think I, you know I pay attention to all the signals. So can you can you dive in a little bit more about how you think about the spectrum of attacks? What might uh, you know, and how to how to put that into context for for us as we're looking at things develop. When I think about cyber attack, there's that traditional definition, right? Deny, destroy, disrupt, uh, deceive. Those are pretty clearly you know going under this bucket of cyber attack. But to me, what's more interesting is really not the the mode, not the the level of sophistication, but really it's the effects, it's the outcomes. An operation can be very low tech, but have tremendous outcomes. In the case of the DDoS attack against the banks, sure, DDoS is not something that is on the high priority list of threats. It is easily, relatively easily mitigated. But what was interesting was the follow-on information campaign, pushing people through the SMS tech spam and pushing them back to the banks to look at the website to perpetrate and to promulgate the fear, the fear factor. So to me, it's it, you know the semantics around whether it's an attack or not are are less important than really were the outcomes reached, were the goals achieved by the perpetrator of these things, and 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 to what measure. I think that's a more uh, a fuller way to look at what we're talking about when we think about cyber attack. I think I think that's right. I think I'd, I'd agree with that. And so, kind of building on this gray zone space where we see activities that. They don't necessarily cost a lot on the adversary side, and the impact is a little nebulous on the the target side. Uh, side we have heard, um, you know, heard you've you've talked about from a nuclear perspective the cybersecurity risks with the nuclear arsenal. Uh, you're also an, an, an expert in offensive security. Can you give us a sense of, from your perspective at least, what you might expect in the coming days and weeks in Ukraine, and how to think about escalation? What what would be some of the limiting parameters for Russian operations, uh, both in Ukraine and in Europe and here in the U.S., that, that where we might see activity X, but not necessarily activity Y? Let's see. 
on 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 the first, what I, I think that if there if an attack actually happens, uh, and by attack I mean a kinetic attack, where with troops invading and then so on, there's a full fledged military operation. Um, I, I think at at that point, uh, many of the operations that have been going on, I still I think will still continue. Um, there is also the question of uh, the extent to which we'll see attacks on infrastructure, perhaps Ukrainian, perhaps non-Ukrainian, uh, that helps the Ukrainians fight the war. Uh, so, for example, um, to the extent that the, the that Ukraine relies on space assets for reconnaissance and, and, and uh, commer these would be commercial space assets, right? Uh, commercial satellites to tell, tell you where Russian troops are massing and, and so on, those kinds of companies may well be attacked uh, as well to shut down in intelligence feeds to, uh, um, uh, to the Ukrainian military. Uh, so, I mean, just, just as, as one example. So I think we'll, we'll see a broader range of, uh, of attacks where they basically intended to cripple um, uh, many of the military functions that the Ukrainian uh, that Ukrainian armed forces are going to be uh, un undertaking uh, on the uh, on the escalation on the escalation side. Um, uh, yes, I mean we have, there are you you worry about escalation um, in both nuclear and and, uh, and and in cyber and and conventionally. I don't want to say in, in any sense that the the, the effects of, of uh, uh, cyber operations, escalatory cyber operations, or or anything like going nuclear. I mean, that, that I, I'm not anticipating going nuclear on on this. No way. Uh, but the but the theory of escalation is is, is you know has to be thought about here, which is that you escalate only you, you escalate with the idea that you can force the other guy back down. That that you want to cause them pain enough. Uh, so that they stop doing what they're doing or to, to influence their decision making. Uh, and then you have to, re if you decide to escalate, you have to worry about his counter escalation. Uh, and so it just builds up on each other. And in the end there, really, you either get off the escalatory ladder um, uh, or you go all the way down to the mat. Uh, I don't expect that to happen immediately. Uh, but you know, it may well become a uh, a test of, of who has the uh, the strongest, pain, you know, the largest pain tolerance, uh, and that's a dangerous, you know, that's a dangerous place to to be, um, and it could well spread to, to other uh, other nations. For example, nations that are supporting Ukraine uh, in 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 their in their efforts. Um, so. I, so, I mean, I think to, to put a bit of a finer point on it, I, I would stipulate that as a part of any sort of ground force movement by the Russians, if they decide to invade, would probably be preceded by some combination of cyber attacks on civilian infrastructure, power grids, like what we saw with the sandworm efforts in 2015 and 16, combined probably with some electronic warfare against telecommunications network, to your point, dazzling jamming of satellite both communications and other sort of remote ground sensing. What do you think, you know, again, stipulating that Ukraine will, will, will have those sorts of targets that could even be destructive. What do you, from an escalatory perspective, what would the US and allies, what sort of steps up the ladder would, would have to happen for uh, Russia to turn and 
uh, turn the, the GRU, the FSB, the SVR, or any Belarusian assets or others against, as you've heard from the U.S. government in the banks, uh, DOJ yesterday with their notice to banks, what do you think it would take to get there? Just again, national assets, so, so distinct, aligned, state-sponsored and controlled forces. I think what you're asking is, is um, will they be attacking them? Will they be attacking uh, sort of critical infrastructure in some uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian critical infrastructure, uh, power grids, banks, and, and, and so on? And I, I, I expect them to be doing that now um, or, or at least pl planting the seeds to enable them to, to, to do it now, uh, essentially at will. Um, I, I, the, the U Ukraine has had a you know ha has had a long history of being the test bed for Russian cyber operations. Um, they uh, um, they've been victimized a lot. Um, I have no particular reason to believe that they're going to necessarily do very much better now than in 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 the past. So I I expect the if if the balloon goes up to, uh, for them to to be uh, compromised in ways that. Um, actually, have, there are two effects. One, that it actually cripples useful national functions like providing power, and two is it creates panic and and and, and uncertainty uh, about the ability of the go Ukraine government to uh, uh, to protect them. Uh, so the the example with the banks uh, and so on is my money still there? That's a big deal. Yeah. Um, lots of people are going to be are, are going to be concerned about that. So it's that that's an example. You might see attacks on hospitals. Uh, where you shut down hospitals and, and people can't get uh, can't get to the hospital and and, and so on um, might not actually be a um, uh, you know have have actual medical impact on a large scale but certainly a lot of you know if I were if there was a if there were troops coming in and so on, uh, and I was uncertain about my, the, my ability to get medical care and so on in case there were shelling, so I sure want to get out of the way. And so, you know, this is a way of, you know, driving refugee flows and, and, and stuff like that. So there's a there's I, I think I agree with that, particularly with with what's going on in Ukraine. So so Sandra, let's let's shift over to back over to you. And um, there's, there's a lot of, you know, are they aren't they are the Russians going to go? Aren't they going to go? There's a lot of anticipation of, as we already talked about, what constitutes an attack and. So that that's it. I don't want to go as far to say there's a lot of admiring the problem, but ultimately you have to ask the question, so what? And then what do we do about it? And so from a maniac perspective, from where you sit, how are you all thinking about uh, some of the threats that, that we may face here in the U.S., uh, separate, again, separate from the geographically limited uh, attacks within Ukraine? How are you thinking about and how are you talking to organizations when, when Kevin goes out on the road, when you all are out there on the road? How, how are you? How are you talking to businesses about what the, the specific risks we may face here? Well, really, it's the message is it's, it's not a panic moment. It's a mission moment. So prepare, but don't panic because we've weathered cyber attacks in the past. If there's been anything good that's come from years of Russian cyber activity aimed at the United States, it's been that we've enumerated a good portion of the Russian cyber capability. We have a lot of information about their TTPs, about threat actors, and businesses and cyber defenders know what they need to do in order to defend themselves. If not, they can look at what Director Easterly had put out, You know what she mentioned about the Shields Up advisory. Some of these things just are aimed at making yourself not the lowest hanging fruit, making sure that you are resilient and that when and if an attack or some kind of breach were to happen, 
that you have a tabletop exercise that you've already run, that you are, you know what the plan is to mitigate and then frankly, to get back to work because we need to be resilient. Cyber attacks and cyber activity is here to stay and we need to be resilient and push forward and not panic, but certainly be prepared. And again, Director Easterly Shields Up Advisory is a, a great document full of very good information um, we also published a, a hardening advisory ourselves on how uh, organizations can protect themselves. I think there's a lot of really great information that's out there that businesses, if they're waiting for, it, it is time to stop waiting and go ahead and get prepared now. Yeah, we're, we're doing the same thing. I think take, you, you have time now to prepare, uh, take some of the measures. The other, the other issue is, you know, kind of don't let a good crisis go to waste. Right. Uh, this is certainly not the first uh, or last geopolitical crisis that will have some function of technological uh, exploitation. And it's, it's, uh, it's smart to get your, your house in order now. All right. So I want to do one more question before we open it up to some of the, the audience questions. But uh, I, let, just to make this issue that much more complex, uh, everybody, of course, remembers Colonial Pipeline from last year, JBS Meets. Uh, I living in the D.C. area, couldn't get gas for a few days last summer. And that kicked off a, an effort on behalf of the National Security Council uh, under uh, Ann Neuberger, the Deputy National Security Advisor, working with the Kremlin, working with her counterparts at the, the Russian National Security Council, of uh, trying to defang and undercut the cyber criminal element that seems to be uh, operating out of a safe harbor or safe haven in Russia. And interestingly, over the last several weeks or months, you, you've actually seen the security services in the Kremlin uh, take some actions and roll up the Our Evil group. Now, it's not clear if they're the developers or the affiliates, and then you've seen some other, other actions against uh, some other malware uh, uh, developers. But what do you, you know, Herb, I'll start with you. What do you make of this? How does this, does it fit into the, the broader context? You know, the, the actually exerting in a really coincidental time influence and control over these ransomware groups. It can't possibly be an accident that this happened at this at this time, right? I mean, I don't think anybody on this call or anybody uh, you know on the panelists or in the audience possibly believes that it was coincidence, okay? So the question is why would the Russians roll attempt to roll up this group? As you point out, first of all, we don't know we we don't know who who they rolled up. Uh, we have a press announcement and, and, and so on. To the best of my knowledge, we haven't gained access to any of them. We haven't been able to question them. We, we, we don't know really anything about the roles that they play. Let's even let's assume that they're key players, that they're really big. That, you know, they're, they're not uh, the low level guys uh, that, that, you know, that hold the door open while the, the, the real players go, go, go to work. What Russia has done is it's pointed out, hi, we have these people and we can control them. We can, you know, we can turn them on or, and, sorry, we can turn them off or, you know, and by implication, we can turn them on. Uh, and and uh, I think it's a pointed reminder from the, uh, from, from the Russians that um, they have a variety of um, sort of non-traditional resources at their disposal. Uh, I, and I think that's, that's the lesson that we should be taking from it. Uh, and we can do what, you know, we, we can take that information as, as, as we see fit. Now, everybody here knew that already, but it's just their way of reminding us. 
that's my take on it. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I gotta agree. It's, it's, it's kind of ridiculously coincidental, um, and and it, it's interesting. It's a deniable, reversible asset. So, I, Sandra, I'm gonna give you a chance to jump in and and how you're thinking about this issue as well. Oh, I think the timing is is suspect uh, for sure, but it also it really doesn't matter. You know why? Because today, many and IR responders are going after, you know, going to help customers all over the place who are victims of ransomware. It is still hugely uh, active. And one of the reasons is a lot of these ransomware operators have affiliates that once one operation shuts down, they simply go and, and either are already connected to or are already serving under a different group. Uh, so the problem is, is, you know, the arrests are, you know, a blip in the actual, you know, outcome in terms of, of reducing ransomware. Um, it is simply a, in my view, a way to try and obfuscate or confuse the situation to bring in, um, you know, the the uh, you know, like some kind of activity that Russia is doing to help, so that we can be just, um, you know, confused or just you know, misdirected from what's happening now. So right now, I'm not buying it, and I I don't think anybody should be buying it. I, so, you know, I, I think I'll give I'll give the, the White House maybe a, l- a little credit for uh, engaging in dialogue and apparently getting some sort of outcome. But I think to the to the broader point that both Herb and, and Sandra, you've made is that this smacks of a bit of gangster diplomacy and that, hey, look, we can work on this thing here. Don't pay attention to what we're doing over here. And it's, it's also you know entirely consistent with with my feeling over the last several years that. Uh, that the Kremlin has been turning a blind eye, knowing full well what the criminal assets in their country and within their orbit. I mean, just the fact that one of the first checks that the the developer, the the malware does, is looks for the Cyrillic language package on on machines. So, you know, this is they they've been developing this strategic cyber capability through criminal gangs over the last several years, and it's also aligned with the the broader kind of objectives of. Of, uh, of the security services in the Kremlin to destabilize the West. All right, so we've got a few minutes and we've got a couple questions coming in from, um, from the audience. And uh, there's one from Peter Wolverton from the Fletcher School. Uh, I love this question. I, I was talking about it a little bit earlier today as well. Uh, so I'm just gonna throw this, uh, let's throw this herb first to you. How effective has the US been in its strategic declassification of intelligence in order to counteract Russian false flag disinformation, both within and outside of Russia and Ukraine. You've seen it, you see it today, you've seen it all week. Seen it. How effective has this been uh, in your view? Um, it's certainly been much more effective uh, than we've ever done it before. Uh, whether it's adequate or not, that's a, that, that, that's, a different, that's a different question. We don't know how it's narrowing uh, Russia's options and, and so on, but they've certainly done a whole lot better uh, now compared to four years ago, uh, you know, or five years ago, um, you know, with the, uh, you know, when, when Russian interference in the election uh, was, was, was noted. Uh, that stuff was very, very tightly held and, and you know, it's just, it's just not now. Um, uh, I think people understand that there are, uh, uh, there are imperatives to get out, even if you might take some risk with your sources and methods and, and so on, compromising those. Um, but they, I mean, 
hats off to them for doing as much as they've done, but, you know, sort of a, a, a B plus, they should be doing better. You know, the, we want them to be encouraging them to, to do better. No A pluses yet. Well, I, um, I'm kind of, I'm an easy grader, so I'm not afraid to throw out a couple A pluses right here. Okay. Having been a part of counteractive measures efforts over the last several years, it, it, it's quite remarkable to me, at least the, the tactical and strategic shifts. But, you know, Sandra, same, yeah. So, so kind of Sandra, same question to you. And then maybe a broader thinking out loud question of um, how, how far can this go? How much further can we take it? Is, is it? What are the risks possibly associated with it? I'm very encouraged by what I've been seeing in the quick declassification of information. If, if not only because when we're talking about, you know, a purveyor of misinformation like Russia, uh, we really neuter the message if we can spotlight it. We can neuter the effect of influence operations if we can uh, debunk it or declassify information about intentions beforehand. So I, you know, I agree. I'm a hard grader, but I'm still giving it an A because knowing where we've come from and where we are now, I think it's been a tremendous step forward for the government on, you know, making sure that we can declassify in time to make an effect. The days of taking years to attribute activity, those days are over. They help nobody. And what we're doing now, I think, is the exact right thing. I, you know, and, and I think I'd add the fact that it, this has a, there's a sense of proactiveness, of, of strategy around it, where I think over the last several years, we've been a little bit more tentative and reactive. Now, it feels like there's a real game plan. Uh, and, and, you know, Herb, one of the things that we recommended right in the Aspen Commission on Information Disorder was a federal strategic approach to countering disinformation. And, and so it seems like there's, there's something afoot here. Uh, so I am, uh, I'm encouraged to see where this goes and uh, see, what, see how much more we can use it. And, and kind of with the added side benefit of um, not only does it expose the operation, it also, I think, throws probably a little bit of uncertainty into the head of the Kremlin uh, leadership, including Putin, of, of maybe he doesn't have his operational security locked down. Maybe they've got some leaks. And of course, that can cut the other way, right? They can start doing some intentional planting of, of uh, false information, false flags in and of themselves. So, all right, um, let, let's uh, change gears here a little bit. So, of course, Ukraine is not a uh, member of NATO. In fact, that that might even at least be the the, uh, the 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 cover story here that the Russians are using that they want to prevent that. Um, and yet, they share a border with uh, at least one NATO member in in Poland. And in fact, they're quite uh, close. Um, so what is the role here of NATO from a cyber perspective? You have the London statement from a couple of years ago that uh, did in fact include cyber attacks as potentially invoking Article 5 responses. I've had this same question of what does cyber really mean in an Article 5 context when you look at the, the specific language, it says it restores security and stability. And, and I don't know what that looks like. So, so Herb, I think you've probably looked at this in the past, but there's a question here from uh, Stephanie Helm from the Mass Cyber Center. Uh, is there any role for the NATO Cyber Defense Center or US Cyber Mission Forces? What contributions can they make to counter Russian or sympathizer cyber actions? And, and I think probably the, the, the best way to, to frame this up is if there's any sort of spillover uh, or collateral damage on Poland, how, how would, could NATO play a, play a role here? Um, 
Well, if it's if it's spillover or collateral damage, then by definition it's unintentional, uh, and, and and we you know we we we. We try to talk to the Russians about that and say you did something and, and you know, they acknowledge that it's unintentional. That's not going to happen. Right. Um, uh, so the, the, the question is, is, is there any, you know, should we be bolstering cyber defenses for NATO, uh, uh, for, for the NATO, for the bordering NATO countries? Um, and, and the answer is yes. And I think we have been helping them. Um, I, I would be amazed uh, if uh, U.S. Cyber Command uh, had, had not been um, all over the place in, in Europe and working with NATO and, and, and so on. Um, um, perhaps a, a, a more important question, and I don't know the answer to this, uh, is uh, whether, or not we'll, we're, we'll, whether or not we will be willing to deploy any offensive capabilities uh, in support of uh, the NATO countries. Um, that's of course a, a, a different, you know, a lower threshold than actually sending troops that will go and, and, and shoot people. Uh, and, and that, I, that I don't know. And I think there, there, there are many escalatory questions that I don't know. I don't know that anybody's thought about them. I mean, I would be surprised if they haven't thought about them, but I don't know. I don't know what they've been thinking about. Them. And I think that kind of really gets to the heart of what an Article 5 response is exactly. on NATO. What does restoring stability and security mean in practice from a side? I mean, that doesn't mean that you're going in and you're attacking uh, a pipeline or, or the grid around Moscow. There, there has Correct. to be, I'm, I, you know, I would imagine some sort of rules of engagement around hitting command and control infrastructure or, or something to that effect, which could, right. to your point... It, it, you know, to your point on escalation, it could that could invoke some kind of a CTSO response, and all of a sudden you've got you know, Sandra, you, I'm sure you can talk to us about Belarus and some of their capabilities. So I think I think this is right. So let's let's kind of pivot here a little bit. And Sandra, there's a question we have from from anonymous. I'm not sure if that's the co collective or they just didn't give us our, their name. Um, but what are the what are the hurdles to attributing cyber attacks to Russia quickly? inaccurately. So obviously y'all have a whole, uh, an alphabet or, or rather a, a zoo of animal names or, or, or no, whatever, number names and all that stuff. Uh, it's the other guys that have the animal names. Y'all have the, the number names. So uh, how do y'all work through the attribution process? And, and we've seen really fast attribution in some cases and other times it takes a little bit longer. So what, you know, what are the hurdles and benefits here? Well, there certainly are hurdles because, uh, especially with new groups, um, you know, backing up a little bit, the way that we do attribution work is we look at years worth of data on clusters of activity. And over time, we can, uh, we, when we cluster these, we can start to see overlapping infrastructure, we can start to understand, um, you know, targets and areas where there's, there's overlap. And then, you know, what we do there is we classify it as an unc or unclassified group because we can only attribute the activity, but not back to, uh, in, you know, a sponsor. With an APT designation, we've gone all the way, but that does take time. And it takes time because, you know, these are spies who are doing everything possible to obfuscate their, you know, their activity. We have the benefit of having information, you know, track these groups for a very long time. So when when we see the same group or we have a lot of data behind that group, it's easier for us to recognize that this is, you know, a cluster of activity that is very familiar to us. You know, the, the difficulty is that these groups are actively trying to hide their tracks. 
Um, and it takes very careful work and it takes very, uh, you know, down to the forensic level to understand, you know, what, not just what the, you know, the uh, trade craft is or the behavior behind it or the, the infrastructure, the command and control, it's all of those things, but also, you know, who benefits from this type of activity, looking at the, you know, from an analytical perspective against that geopolitical backdrop, who would be doing this and why? You know, I can tell you that with uh, a lot of the uh, ghostwriter campaign for a while, it was suspected Russian groups, but until we could put more technical evidence on there, um, we, it, was, it became clear to us that it was Belarus, uh, an organization, you know, stemming from there. So over time, the picture becomes clear because more and more evidence can come together. So let's uh, let's take another couple questions uh, from the the audience. We've got T.J. Harrington from McKinsey that's got a couple questions in here that that are are good. So I'm going to take both of them, and I'm going to give one to you first, Herb, and then I got another one for for you, uh, Sandra. So first, uh, so Herb, a, a lot has changed over the last couple years in terms of rule of engagement, authorities for cyber operations, particularly here in the U.S. with Cyber Command. You know, based on what you know, your understanding, some of the the discussions that that we've been having on in Congress and in the policy spheres, you, how are we dealing right now from a rules of engagement perspective, and what is the ideal uh, posture to enable our our you know, our cyber war, cyber warriors, as they may be, as TJ says here, um, what are the appropriate updated rules of engagement for our cyber warriors to allow them to actively engage? in critical infrastructure defense. And I think let's split that off and let's talk about supporting allies over there. Let's just focus on that part right now. Well, okay, so uh, from my standpoint, the rules of engagement uh, regarding defensive operations um, are pretty, are, are relatively straightforward. Certainly if you're talking about stuff that will uh, not have an offensive effect uh, on uh, not harm adversary systems, uh, then I think that you're, you can basically do whatever you want. And, and, and that's, uh, there's very little controversy about that. The real questions here are, I, I think, uh, what does it mean to conduct uh, an offensive operation in cyberspace um, to, to go after the, your, your tormentor? Um, there's, and, and here the, the, the distinction is between uh, offensive operations taken with the intent of being defensive or offensive operations taken with the intent of power, uh, of projecting power, cyber power uh, into the other guy's uh, system that will sort of teach him a lesson um, as opposed to defeat a threat, uh, a specific threat. And, and uh, US Cyber Command ha has, uh, has, has uh, looser uh, rules of engagement, as I understand it, under its uh, approach of, of persistent engagement and defending forward. It says, let's go, let, let's be out, out there um, uh, for, for, for defensive purposes, but in the other guy's networks uh, doing things that force them to do defense. Uh, and therefore shifting some of their resources out of offense into defense and thereby weakening their, 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 their defense. So this is something that uh, I, I think um, is looser than it was under the, uh, certainly under the Obama administration. Um, I, I think that there, the, the, there's a fundamental tension uh, between 
um, centralizing your authorities for conducting offensive operations uh, for whatever purpose, um, and uh, which you want you want centralized control because you want people to you know, be able to weigh the different equities, the different costs and benefits from a diplomatic perspective, economic perspective, and so on. But that takes longer, and you're much slower that way. Um, and so, you know, you could argue that under the Obama administration, uh, things, things happened on the offensive side just too slowly. And, and, and uh, that's the reason for, uh, for, new, for new rules, uh, for greater flexibility. Um, I have some, some sympathy with that. On the other hand, when you, when you decentralize it a little bit, you know, more you increase the possibility of inadvertent escalation, that the, that the guys in the field are going to take some action that's going to have some untoward effect that they didn't anticipate. Um, and the, you know, the, the, the national, our national command authority, the president's going to have to deal with the repercussions of that. Um, so it's a, there, there's no perfect balance to it. Um, and, and I think we're still in the process of experimentation. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And there are a few other questions in here kind of about that escalatory nature and, uh -huh. and what the, you know, what a punchback is. So Sandra, real quick, um, there's a question, a, another one from, from TJ from McKinsey here. What is the advice to U.S. international companies with operations in Russia and China? They have Russian code writers, Russian employees with access to their systems. What risk discussions should be underway? I'm going to take that question and, and shift it a little bit. You know, how are you, you know, what are you doing with companies that have operations in Ukraine right now? Whether it's a footprint, whether it's a workforce, whether they have third-party dependencies, code writers. I mean, they're, they're brilliant software engineers in Ukraine. And so how are we thinking about those dependencies and what should organizations be doing right now uh, to protect themselves? It really is about vigilance, um, understanding that right now organizations in Ukraine are, should be at a heightened alert if they aren't already. I think that goes without saying. But when we think about the, the threat landscape and what Russia has already started to do with you know, defacements and you know, some wiping activity and spear phishing, uh, every organization that's in Ukraine, particularly those that uh, are in critical infrastructure, really should be thinking about their defensive posture, you know, doing the same things that we're asking American businesses to do, to be ready and to understand that um, they are could be on a target list. It, it could very well be not even because they are core to any military or economic um, uh, you know, function, but because their uh, breach or the, the network going down would have uh, you know, information operations value. So it would have um, a fear factor. So that could be newspapers, it could be uh, you know, famous or, or you know, highly visible organizations. They really need to be thinking about themselves within you know, what is their threat profile when it comes to Russian objectives. I think that's the way to look at it. I, yeah, I, you know, and as I think about um, what could be coming over the course of the next couple of days, I think similar to you, have bucketed up into three sorts of uh, cyber actions. First is anything that may hit Ukraine, and then you could have some sort of network connection that could spill outside of the country. The second is some sort of ransomware event like uh, not Petya that may not be geographically limited to Ukraine and, and could have some wormable capability uh, that would spread globally. And the third is more that directed activity against uh, U.S. infrastructure. And so we've got a, a question here from 
uh, Joe uh, uh, Uchil from uh, Joe, I forgot where you're, where you're with, but uh, from a practical standpoint, what level of Russian cyber activity and to whom will it take for the U.S. to treat it as escalatory? What would fall under that radar? So, Herb, you know, we, you've talked a lot about escalation ladder. What are the things that would be, you know, um, immediately take it up above that 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 red line, which is a a uniquely American concept? Well, so for example, you could, I mean. A big thing they could do uh, would be to pull down the power in Washington, D.C. Um, I don't think they're going to do that. I mean, the real for me, the most important question is, is what's the smallest thing they could do that would be uh, that we would regard as escalatory? And I think we don't know the answer to that. There's certainly some big things they can do that would be escalatory. Um, interfering with NATO uh, troop movements, for example, that are that are happening now as we speak. Uh, you know, the bolster, but there's a, a bolstering of, of, uh, uh, of U.S. forces in, uh, in, in Europe right now. Uh, they could, in fact, you could imagine cyber attacks that get into that, that uh, mess that up or delay it and so on, um, just as a signal, not that it would have any significant effect, but just as a signal that, hey, we can do this. Um, how would we, how would we respond to that? That's an interesting question. I mean, it might not have any big effect, um, might not even be noticeable outside a bunch of specialists, but the specialists would know and the president would know and, and they would have to take that into account. So I think the real question is how small uh, an effect uh, would have to be. Uh, and I think there we don't, that's where the uncertainties are. Well, with that, I think uh, time she's up. Uh, we are at the top of the hour almost. I want to thank uh, Herb and Sandra for joining us today, spending the last hour or so with us. Uh, very insightful conversation. Hopefully it, it gives us a better sense of, of what's coming. Uh, well, what hopefully does not happen, of course, uh, but what we may be seeing, unfortunately, in the next couple of days, days or weeks. So with that, uh, thanks, everybody. Hope you have a uh, good afternoon. Chris Krebs is a founding partner of the Krebs Stamos Group and the Senior Newmark Fellow in Cybersecurity Policy at Aspen Digital. He previously served as the first director of the Federal Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Sandra Joyce is Executive Vice President and Head of Global Intelligence at the cybersecurity firm Mandiant, where she oversees intelligence collection, research, analysis, and support services for Mandiant clients. Dr. Herb Lin is Senior Research Scholar for Cyber Policy and Security at the Center for International Security and Cooperation and the Hank J. Holland Fellow in Cyber Policy and Security at the Hoover Institution, both at Stanford University. In addition to these positions, he is also Chief Scientist Emeritus for the Computer Science and Telecommunications Board, National Research Council, NRC, of the National Academies, where from 1990 to 2014, he served as study director of major projects in public policy and information technology. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by Aspen Digital and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.